We got lots more on the show today, but first we start with the health minister for the province, Adrian Dix. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for doing this. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, I always appreciate your time. Let me, let's me let start with this back-to-school plan, I, and I, I appreciate that you're not the education minister, so you're not directly involved with that plan, but let me ask you about the concerns that have been raised. Cohorts or learning groups in high school, up to 120 kids. The teachers' union saying, wait, what's going on here? That's too many people. Your thoughts as the, edu- as the, as the health minister, are you concerned? Well, um, I'm concerned about COVID-19, and it's why we're taking the extraordinary steps we are. We had a June school restart, the only one in Canada, 200,000 students safely returned to the classroom. And so that we, we learned from that. We've put in place uh, significant and are putting in place significant health and safety measures. All of this was done in consultation with the Ministry of Health, so it's very much in our jurisdiction, and with the provincial health officer who was part of this and, uh, of course, signed off on the plan and was part of the announcement yesterday. And uh, we've been working with parents, working with school districts, working with teachers for months and months and months. And so, naturally, there's concern. I mean, we're in the middle of uh, an unprecedented international health emergency, so uh, there's concern, of course. But I think we've shown that we're methodical and and patient and thoughtful, and that these decisions are driven by uh, by health policy, and they're going to continue to be. And I, I understand the concerns of, of uh, teachers. I understand the concern of some parents, and those are things that we're just going to have to work through as we approach September. Well, could you explain the the logic of this plan for me, given that for months we've been hearing from yourself and from Dr. Bonnie Henry, keep your bubble small, uh, six people max at a restaurant table, five guests if you go on vacation, very small numbers, and now we suddenly get a back-to-school plan with up to 120 kids gathered together. They're How is that gathered, consistent? They're, they're not gathered together. I mean, the, well, the, what the plan intends, um, Mike, what the plan intends at the elementary level, I think the number is 60, is for that to be the maximum number of people in a learning group to, to in fact, do what everyone is asking to be done, which is to limit the, the number of possible contacts in a learning, learning group at both the elementary and secondary level. And that, right. that, argue, that argument has been informed by public health. So you have a, we have secondary schools. We'll take um, Windermere in my, in my constituency, which has 1,000 people in it. We don't want 1,000 people together. We want to limit the, the – we want to divide up and limit the number of people who could be in contact with one another in the course of a school year. And that's what, and the intent is that over the course of a school year, that would be the maximum number of people. So that advice has come and has been developed by public health. And so I appreciate there are concerns and people are going to have to concern, have concerns and we're going to work through these, these concerns with people. But uh, this isn't, uh, this is, founded on a on a science basis as for the maximum number of people at an event of 50 well that's those things essentially uh, don't change here they don't change at all and you know we had a meeting yesterday with faith leaders mike and uh, there's lots of people who would like to expand that out in churches and they say oh i've got a big church and so on but um those limits stay in place and uh and uh as do the classroom limits that are in place in british columbia now well let me let me play uh, a clip here for you from the president of the teachers union who was on the station yesterday, Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, and here she is expressing some of her concerns about this plan. Terry Mooring, 
I anticipate there's going to be a lot of questions around it, like um, how will it translate to a secondary school? How can we ensure that students um, still get their full range of educational opportunities? Um, and then does that also include, do the 60 and 120 also include all the teachers that support classrooms? Because it's not just the classroom teachers that we're talking about. Classrooms today have learning support teachers. They have counselors. They have all sorts of specialist teachers and, and support per- personnel, educational assistants, that come into classrooms to support students. And so do those numbers include all of those adults as well? It sounded like that was the case in the news conference today. And that means that we're going to have to have smaller class sizes as well, which is something that we've been advocating for for some time. And so I'm, I'm you know, we'll be really heartened if that is the case. Um, but, you know, what needs to happen is that continued um, collaboration and authentic collaboration. Okay, so she's raising a lot of questions there. The union is calling for a rethink and an overhaul of this plan. Is that going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that uh, the the basics of the plan have been laid out. Um, they're informed by public health. We're investing a massive amount of money in uh, in the safety of schools uh, that uh, Minister Fleming announced yesterday. We're putting in rules that uh, will uh, help protect public health and uh, and uh, preparing for a return to school. The one thing I would say to people, though, is this, and it's important. Um, many children who didn't take part in the restart haven't been in school since the end of spring break, which is right. March the 20th. Yeah. And it's important that children go to school. And, so, and it's important that schools be safe and we deal with issues of transmission. And it's not just COVID-19, as, as you'd be aware, Mike. Uh, last year in 2019, we had uh, measles outbreaks in public schools in British Columbia and in, in other schools and independent schools as well. So we have to take these steps all the time. And I think the steps we're taking are designed to keep people safe. And we've got to keep working with teachers and with parents because people have lots of questions. And I, I expect you're going to see, um, uh, as we've seen in the last two months, where the teachers have been fully involved in the engagement, they're going to be fully involved over the next month because there's it lots sound of work like, to do. It doesn't to sound do. like they were, they were necessarily fully engaged with the, this announcement, given the surprise that they're expressing today. Uh, but let, let me ask. Let me what, ask you about what they're expressing with with, with respect is um, is some disagreement with uh, and some concern and it's the job of the BCTF uh, to represent teachers and we understand that and we respect that. Let me, let me ask you about the back to school start uh, target here. Tuesday, September eighth, the first day after Labor Day. The union is already out this morning saying they believe that's too early. They're worried about coming back after a long weekend when there potentially could have been exposures on the weekend if people are getting together for the last long weekend of summer. They want this the start the school start date pushed back by two weeks or more. Your thoughts on that? Well, um, the plan uh, the plan says it should be uh, September eighth, and generally speaking, a school start will occur after a weekend. It may be a long weekend. It may be a weekend. What we have to do, and what we have to continue to do, and people people have made this point all the time. We had forty one cases yesterday of COVID nineteen in British Columbia. We take it seriously every day. And you know how many more cases that is than I'd like to see? Exactly 41. So our ability to do surgeries, our ability to expand visitations and long-term care, our ability to start school, of course, depends on what happens with COVID-19 in this period and in every other period. And so, of course, it depends on that. And 
what we have to continue to do is follow the guidance and the rules set out by public health and by set out by Dr. Henry, but all the other people in public health. And so that, and that's what we need to do as well, because if we do that successfully, if we have a good BC day long weekend, this weekend, for example, then that will have a positive effect on all of that. Everybody, the BCTF, everybody wants kids back in school on September 8th because being in school is where children should be. They want kids back in two weeks after that. That's the union's position this morning. But, but, you know, in in, in general, they want children back in school because they care about children as everyone does. And so what we want to see... Um, is uh, is a continued flattening of the curve, and we have to right. keep doing that. And I know that's I know it's I know people are tired of it, and probably even tired of hearing me say it, um, because uh, it's been six months since the since the first case. But all of what we do also depends on our collective activity. Minister, thank you for coming on this morning. Hey, right anytime, Mike. Take care, eh? I, I appreciate it. Same to you. That is Adrian Dix. He's BC's Minister of Health. You heard him there defending the back-to-school plan. This is an interesting situation we've got now here with the BC Teachers Federation. So they don't like this plan. They think it should go back to the drawing board. They want an overhaul of this plan. They are concerned that some of the numbers in this plan are too large. Uh, learning cohorts of up to 120 kids in high school. They think that's too many kids too close together during this pandemic. And there's still some questions, as she mentioned in your in your introduction, about uh, how that works uh, going forward for September 8th. And uh, I think what I heard her say yesterday is that uh, they want a little bit of time to work with these guidelines further. We have a steering committee in place that I appointed. We do have that time, and we've got districts out now with the expectation to move forward to stage two. To they're able to begin uh, uh, to further plan, I should say, uh, with their education teams in communities around BC and. Teachers and local teachers associations are going to be integral to that effort. Okay, that's uh, Education Minister Rob Fleming speaking yesterday about the government's back-to-school plan and the reaction from the teachers' union seeking an overhaul of this plan, a delay in the start to the school year. You heard him say there, well, there is still time to make changes uh, before the school year starts in the fall. Let's dig deeper into this back-to-school plan now with my guest, Matt Westfall. He is the president of the Surrey Teachers Association, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Matt. Not too bad, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for doing this. What was your reaction when you heard the details of this back-to-school plan yesterday? Uh, Mike, I felt torn because we know that it's important for kids to be in school as much as they can, and teachers really want to be back in schools working with students. And at the same time, the plan the government has has so many question marks about whether it's going to be possible to do that in a safe way. And that's why the union is opposing the plan in its current form. Okay, what are the biggest question marks to you? Um, Let me paint you a picture that gives an an idea of what the challenge is. Because we know that kids from 10 and up uh, have as much of a risk of transmission as adults, according to some of the science that's coming out. So say you have 30, 30 or more students in a classroom, and it's not a very big classroom. It may not have a window. You have a teacher. You may have an education assistant. You could have a learning support teacher in there to support some of the students. There's no ability to physically distance. There's no requirement for masks. But according to the plan, this is all okay, and we should feel perfectly safe. And I can't really think of any other place in the province where you'd have that kind of a configuration without further precautions. 
Yeah, I mean, at the same time that uh, I guess Bonnie Henry is telling us you can't have more than six people gathered around a table at a restaurant, and now, now I guess it's okay to have 30 kids uh, in, in a classroom. So I, I take your point that how is this going to work? Your point about masks there, Matt, with uh, no requirement for, for masks in the school, that's the position of the union, though, right? You know that, right? Like the union does it, the union's official position is they don't want mandatory masks. Well, it, it took a lot of effort for us to, to get a commitment to provide masks for people who are who are requesting it, and we really appreciate that in the minister's announcement. Uh, yeah. One thing we know about masks is the more people who wear them, the safer it is for everyone. So I, I'm not sure we could ever get to a point of a mandate because there's some yeah. students who are not going to be able to do it, some adults who won't be able to. Well, what, is, what, is the gov- what, is, what is the government's commitment on masks, that, that a mask will be available for anyone who wants one in the school? My understanding is yes. For those okay. who request it, it will be provided. Okay, how do we go back to school without kids being in contact with, with other kids and with teachers and with support workers? Is that even possible? Well, th- there's always going to be some contact there. One yeah. thing we really think is important is having smaller class sizes. So even though it's a good thing that there's the government's putting more money forward, there's no money for that to actually organize classes in a smaller way, which other jurisdictions, like Denmark, when they came back, their classes were much smaller. And, and that's part of how they were able to be successful. But we haven't heard a commitment to have smaller classes so you won't have such a big group of people packed into a room. So that's one example of something we'd like to see. Okay, like you mentioned in your example, 30 kids in a, in a classroom. What are you describing there, like a high school setting? That could be elementary as well. Uh, yeah. you know, kids grade four and up, you could easily have 30 or even more, depending on the, what would the be, what would be a, What would be a safe number in your mind? Not that number. I, I think there's just so many concerns because the assumption on in this plan is that, well, you have this cohort or learning group, and it's designed to restrict your contact with people outside of that. But within it, there's no requirement to physical distance, and it's not even going to be possible in the rooms because they're, they're just not big enough to allow that. Okay, were you surprised at, at these details? Because this is a plan that we're told was developed in consultation with the teachers' union. Then suddenly on the day the plan is announced, the teachers' union is saying they don't like the plan. So what happened here? Were you guys surprised at the details in this plan? Or were, was there any kind of like a switcheroo that was pulled here? Like, how did this happen? If, if you guys were in the t- at the bargaining table, or I guess at the planning table, to develop this plan, how do, why is the union opposing it now? Uh, there's been a lot of good work done in the, the steering committee and the planning groups with a lot of 25 teachers working on that. But the whole concept of the learning groups or cohorts and having 100% of students back, including secondary, that only came up, in my understanding, is last week. And there was not enough time to have people who actually work in schools talk up, play out, okay, what are all the implications of this? How is this actually going to work? Uh, so that's, that's been a problem with the consultation process is that, that needed to be introduced sooner so that there could be more work. And that's why we're calling for, we need to push this back, have more t- time and, you know, rethink this plan. Okay, speaking to Matt Westfall, he is the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Matt, what do you think about the, the target date for back to school here, Tuesday, September 8th, the first day after Labor Day? I've spoken to some teachers this morning. I've spoken to some officials from the union who are expressing concern about that, that they want the start of the school year pushed back. Your thoughts? I, I think it needs to be pushed back because there's going to be a lot of planning. If this is the plan that actually goes ahead, there's going to be a lot of rethinking of the whole schedule for secondary schools, for example, and even elementary. That is going to take time. There's going to need to be time for training. 
on the health and safety protocols and on how things are going to work. You may have people who are teaching things that are different from what they thought it was going to be in June because everything is being overhauled. That's going to take time. So if you want to have a successful startup, we need to push it back to give more time so that there's a solid plan that will be safe for people. Okay, what about, let's say you've got a parent who is concerned about this plan. Maybe they've got an immune-compromised family member at home, a parent, a grandparent. They're worried about COVID-19. They've been very cautious in following the rules. Now they're presented with a back-to-school plan with lots of kids gathered in, in a confined space, as you've described. Do you think that parents should have the option to keep their kids home and continue distance learning if they so choose? Uh, That's not really for me to say. I will say that if that is what is permitted, we need to staff it differently. We can't just have the regular teacher teaching full-time in the classroom and then also having to have a remote program for someone else. But one option is there's many teachers who are in exactly that position. So maybe, and so the whole issue of medical accommodations is still going to be there. So maybe we need to have them involved in that work so that those students are supported. But there's is, is still there, a lot of unanswered questions about is how there, that is there, uh, is there a potential for a medical accommodation for a teacher? Like what if a teacher ha- has a, an immune-compromised health concern or a family member? What are, those te- what, is the op- what are the options available for that teacher? Well, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Because what I'm hearing from my school district is they don't think it's going to be nearly as accommodating as it was back in June. And that's creating a huge amount of anxiety among people who are wondering, can I safely go back? I can't afford not to work. uh, So what's going to happen to me? So that's part of what's causing all the concern right now once people are seeing more of the shape of what it's going to be. Okay, what happens if the government digs in here and says this is the plan and we're sticking to the plan and we're going forward with it? I mean, do teachers just got to uh, suck it up and show up for work? I I don't know where we're going to be. And the fact is we have a lot of time yet. So that's why we're yeah. saying, let's get back to these committees. Let's re- rethink the plan so that we can take the time and have experts who actually do the work and know how schools operate. So let's make sure we can have a plan that everyone can feel comfortable with. So we still have time this summer to okay. come up with something better. Okay, my guest is Matt Westfall. He is the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Let's talk about ICBC now and your auto insurance premiums. Should you get a rebate from ICBC during the COVID-19 pandemic? Fewer people driving, fewer accidents happening on our roads and highways. Is ICBC saving lots of money as a result? Now, earlier, ICBC had indeed reported they had saved $158 million because of reduced accidents. That was back during the first six weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic. Traffic starting to build again, especially as we get into the summer months, so you can bet the accident rate will go up as well. But do you think that you deserve a break on your ICBC premiums, a rebate on your car insurance because of lower accidents happening in the province during the pandemic. My guest is Jazz Johal, Liberal MLA. He is the Liberal ICBC critic. He uh, just introduced a private member's bill on this issue. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jazz, thank you for coming on. Pleasure, Mike. Okay, let's talk about how much money ICBC has saved. Like the last I saw was that update back earlier in the spring. Is there any recent numbers in ICBC if they're saving money on re- from reduced accidents? Uh, no, there's been absolutely no no information. And that's part of the problem when I introduced this private member's bill uh, is that we haven't been provided that information yet. Other jurisdictions have not only acknowledged they're saving money, uh, but have already passed on savings, mailed out checks. Those checks have been cashed. 
uh, yet you and I and your listeners are still waiting for more information to come out. I will probably get it in, in September with the quarterly results, but it's absurd uh, that we are still in this um, uh, state of emergency and we're still uh, waiting for numbers from ICBC. Um, and that's part of the problem. There's slow walk on this thing. And so when I introduced my private members bill, it's just to say that during the state of emergency time period, which is up to and including today from when it started in March, that whatever savings there are, that they be returned to the people of British Columbia. Uh, they've done it in many U.S. states. They've done it in Ontario, and they've done it in Manitoba as well. And in Ontario, Manitoba, different systems, of course, uh, $150 on average in Ontario, uh, wow. And one hundred and forty dollars was mailed out in Manitoba, which is a public system. The private insurance or insurance industry is maintaining they 've paid out on average about two hundred and eighty dollars i think they 're releasing that number today. Uh, but the numbers that were announced earlier was around the one forty one fifty mark uh, but that number continues to grow. Uh, we did something called estimates uh, just last week, and what that is is basically a critic like myself goes line by line through the numbers uh, at ICBC, and the minister acknowledged that even today. The driving, um, the amount of people driving in British Columbia is still below the average, still below pre-COVID levels. So ICBC is still saving money up to and including today. Yet there's been no talk about returning those dollars. So what I've done in this private members bill is during the um, um, state of emergency in British Columbia, whatever savings ICBC has had, that those be returned to ratepayers, meaning the people of British Columbia. Okay, the government says ICBC has still got a lot of financial problems over there. Everyone's familiar with the famous dumpster fire going on yeah. over at ICBC, and ICBC acknowledged back in the spring that, yeah, we've saved some money because of fewer accidents happening on the road, but they also say they're losing money in some other areas. For example, people canceling their car insurance. Maybe they've lost their job. Maybe their hours have been cut back. They didn't need to drive their car anymore for whatever mm -hmm. reason, or maybe they want to save some money uh, during this economic slowdown. So they cancel their auto insurance, and that's a hit to ICBC's revenues. They lose, yeah. they lose a lot of money when people cancel their auto insurance. Is that a yeah. valid reason to, to say we, we can't afford to give you a rebate right now? My first response to that would be, well, do you think they're doing that in Ontario? The answer is probably yes. You think they're doing that in Manitoba? Of course they are. Are they doing that in U.S. states uh, when, when they were in lockdown in the U.S.? Of course they were. Yet it, still... There were checks mailed out and rebates and, and, and offered to people, people in those jurisdictions. Why is it any different here in British Columbia? That's the part I don't understand. They have the same amount of people in Ontario, more people in Ontario and other jurisdictions that are doing the same thing as they were in British Columbia, which means canceling their insurance or reducing the type of insurance that they have, uh, changing their insurance, yet you still had rebates and dollars returned to taxpayers or people in those uh, jurisdictions. But we yeah. can't seem to do it here, right? Yeah, it's kind but of those, ridiculous. But those other jurisdictions didn't have the same dumpster fire going on that we've had in British Columbia, right? I mean, ICBC was just bleeding money. They were losing like a mm -hmm. billion dollars a year for three years. So doesn't that hammer their bottom line? I mean, they're just broke, aren't they? Well, I would, what I would argue there, Mike, first of all, there was was a trend upwards in regards to claims being paid. I think in 2015, we paid $2.4 billion. There was a lot more people going to court. Fixing cars is more expensive. Of course, there's some challenges. ICBC's had ups and downs throughout its history in regards to challenges. Insurance companies do that. But to say that in this case, where you've got a once-in-a-century pandemic, where people really need help uh, beyond your rent uh, every month, I would think paying for ICBC on a vehicle would be your second highest cost. And this is where we should be worrying about 
people and making sure you get a few extra dollars back in their, in their pockets. And it's not indefinite. All I'm saying is during this state of emergency, if there's a money that you have saved, let's return that back to the folks uh, who pay for it. And I think it's the right thing to do. Other jurisdictions are doing it. And I think ICBC okay. should step up as well. Okay, I'm speaking to liberal ICBC critic Jazz Johal. ICBC had also earlier said, Jazz, that they had lost a lot of money in their investment portfolio with uh, some of the market volatility we saw uh, during this pandemic. And they said they lost like a billion bucks or something, didn't they, in their their uh, their investment portfolio? Yeah. Well, you know, look, uh, my investment portfolio, I haven't looked, I'm sure went down as yours did it, as your listeners did. But if you invested a, a hundred bucks into NASDAQ on January 1st, uh, today, that $100 investment would be about $100, give or take a couple of bucks. So the, the, the market is coming back. Is it all, all there? Probably not. In some cases, it may be. These investments generally, whether it's ICBC or pension funds broadly, are invested in you know broad uh, section of the market from equities to, to uh, T-bills, those types of things. They're conservative investments. So uh, have it lost? Has it lost some money? Of course it has. Uh, do you think the insurance, other insurance companies haven't put some of their dollars away into the market and they've, they've been hit as well? Of course they have. But those markets are coming back. I think that's a bit of a red herring. I don't doubt for a minute there's some challenges there. But I, I, you know, ICBC continues to throw out all these excuses. When people need help, let's help them out. The market is going to come back. They've got a significant amount of dollars invested. Uh, it's not going anywhere. Work safe the same way. Those dollars are going to come back. I'm not too worried about the market not returning one day. And I think if you looked at their numbers from January 1 to today, there may be some difference. But to say that it's so significant that we're not going to return money to people of British Columbia, I think that's a stretch. Okay, you've mentioned that you've introduced a private member's bill in the B.C. legislature that would, how, how would this work? You touched briefly on it, but it would, what, require ICBC to give drivers a rebate? Yes, essentially what we're saying is within this um, this state of emergency period, let us know, first of all, share the information in regards to how much money you have saved, and from there, return that money to ratepayers. Whether it's 100% or 90% or 75%, let's have that broad conversation. But we do believe that that money should be returned to the people of British Columbia. Uh, and so it's just within the, 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 the state of emergency period. So it would start okay. in March and all the way up until today and until that ends, and I suspect well into September. Okay, opposition private members' bills typically uh, die on the order paper and don't go yep. anywhere. We're in, we're in a minority parliament here in, in Victoria in these strange times politically. I mean, is there any chance this goes forward or just like, or the government's got to call it for debate, first of all, and they won't, yeah. right? And I wish they would. I mean, my, my reason to do this more than anything else is just to make sure, A, we have a broader conversation. Yeah. Many of my constituents in British Columbia say return some of that money. It shouldn't be with ICBC. So the ball's in the NDP's court, NDP government's court. If you yeah. really want to get money back to the people of British Columbia, let's have that conversation. Think, Bring it for it. Let's debate it. Do you think that there's some politics going on here? Because I certainly do. We've got an election scheduled Next year, the scheduled election date is the fall of 2021. We have heard John Horgan make some strange musings about possible a snap election earlier than that. But the next scheduled election is the fall of next year. Uh, the government has already announced they're going to a system of no-fault auto insurance, and they say that will save a lot of money to ICBC, and people will get a 20% on average, a 20% decrease in their auto insurance premiums next year, which I mm -hmm. think is is crucially timed 
in a pre-election period. So I, I think maybe, do you think maybe the government's keeping its powder dry here? They don't want to give people a rebate right now because they want to give it the rebate. They want to give people money back on their ICBC next year before an election. Well, yeah. Look, that's part of it as well. There's actually there's two parts to this. You're absolutely right. I think your assessment is is, is bang on. Um, but what happens now? Let's say Mike Smith goes in to buy insurance today. You won't need third party legal liability with no fault, but you will pay the full dollar amount for third party legal liability today. So you're overpaying your on your ICBC well, bill you'll already. You'll get a rebate when, it comes, a rebate, when no fault comes in. Yeah, you get the rebate, but part of that yeah. rebate is money you've already paid, and you're just yeah. going to give you your own money back. So yeah, that's not a rebate. A I guess it's like a re- so they got, refund. They've got, they've got COVID money coming in right now, and then Mike Smith goes and pays a third-party legal liability, and they're going to give that back to him, but they're going to say, hey, look, it's we're such a generous government, we're giving this money back to you. So okay. it's actually your own money they're returning to you on the no-fault, on the, uh, sorry, on the uh, third-party legal liability. So there's there's two games being played there, but you're bang on. This is being yeah. saved till next year. But, the, but I would argue, look, the, the people need to help today and now. Let's get yeah. let's get on with it. Yeah, uh, other jurisdictions have done it. Okay, here's what we'll do. We'll take a break. We'll come back. My guest is Jazz Joe Hall. He's liberal MLA. He's the liberal critic for ICBC. Let's talk about the We Charity scandal now rocking the Justin Trudeau government. It is a big day on this story. This afternoon, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau scheduled to testify in front of a House of Commons Finance Committee. Opposition MPs here just licking their chops. They're ready to rip into Trudeau about this scandal. Of course, the We Charity organization, very close to the Trudeau family. They have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking fees to Justin Trudeau's mother, his brother. Uh, Very controversial. The finance minister, Bill Morneau, has apologized for his role in this. Refunded money to the We Charity for travel expenses that he received uh both of under investigation by the federal ethics commissioner this will be a fascinating day this afternoon now trudeau set to testify this afternoon um, we they will bring you, we will bring you that live i'm certain on the jill bennett show coming up after your noon news so don't go anywhere well, we're going to talk a little bit now about what to expect it was a wild day yesterday in this story as well when the keelberger brothers testified in front of that committee of course the uh, mark and craig kielberger the very charismatic founders of the we charity organization i have a little listen to some of the highlights here of their appearance in front of the the uh, federal finance committee uh committee yesterday these guys they got grilled they got grilled like burgers yesterday have a listen never seen the prime minister or sophie gregoire trudeau in a social setting neither of us have we've never had a a, a you know a meal with him we, we've never socialized with them ever. Yes, she spoke on the We Day stage, but she also provided time to come to the receptions, to have the opportunity to meet with individuals, to sign the books, to do all these additional events. Frankly, I wish it wasn't a sole source contract. I wish we could have competed with others. I wish that different decisions had been made on the final decision-making on all of these matters. That was not ours to decide. You know, there are days that we just, we wish that we had never answered the phone on, on April 19th. Okay, yeah, they wish this had never happened. I bet they do. They have taken a real beating there in the We Charity affair. Okay, let's talk about what to expect coming up this afternoon and the events we've witnessed so far. My guest is Tom Korski. He is the managing editor of Black Locks Reporter in Ottawa. They're an independent newsroom. They do an excellent job, in my opinion, of covering Parliament Hill. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Tom, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. 
Hey, let's take a, a quick look back first, Tom, at the, the testimony yesterday of Mark and Craig Kielberger and their dramatic appearance in front of this finance committee. What jumped out at you yesterday from their testimony? Well, one was the uh, patter, uh, we're led to believe, just a couple of country boys trying to help the kids and stumbled yeah. into this $43.5 million federal grant. Yeah. There, there were some inconsistencies that were troubling. Uh, one was their non-disclosure of uh, fees and expenses that were paid to the prime minister's wife, mother, brother, that we calculate come to about $564,000, Mike, and that's only since 2016. Wow. That's serious money. Anyone would say that's, that's a lot of money. Never yeah. disclosed it. In hindsight, it might be an issue, testified Craig Kielberger. In, I understand the people's point when they're troubled by that. He says, well, you bet. You know, uh, Trudeau was supposed to be up for an hour today. The Liberal MPs on the right. Finance Committee booked him for an hour. What's my point? To give you an idea of how wary they are that this is all going south, they wanted him in there for 60 minutes. Opposition parties said, forget it. It's going to be three hours. Get ready for it. And they won the vote last night. So Trudeau's up for three hours. If he walks out, they have put him on notice. We're just going to issue you a summons to come back. It's pretty tense, Mike. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, Trudeau was originally scheduled to testify for an hour. In some ways, I'm surprised he is testifying at all, and he's not trying to invoke some sort of privilege as prime minister to avoid uh, being questioned in front of this committee. So I think the fact that he's going to answer questions at all is, is a good thing. But yeah, he wanted to testify for an hour, and that's what liberal MPs wanted at first as well. And this guy is good at running out the clock. I mean, he can rag the puck. He could have really run out the clock there without answering a lot of questions. So I'm glad to hear that he's going to be uh, in front of this committee for, for a much longer period of time. What are you anticipating this afternoon? What do you think the key questions are that Trudeau will be facing as he sits down in front of this committee today? Well, he has suggested, th th this is his problem. Uh, he voted in Cabinet May 22nd to award this service agreement without competition to these country boys, the Kielberger brothers, the Innocents, $43.5 million grant to run this national program. Right. He never disclosed, never told anybody about the fees and expenses paid to his immediate family. Problem right. number one. There's an act of parliament, it's called the Conflict of Interest Act, says you can't do that. That's actually breach of a federal law. The good news is the maximum penalty is a $500 fine. Problem number two, there's a section of the criminal code, it's called influence. It says no MP may exercise his duty in government for the benefit of himself or relatives, including family members. That's punishable by 14 years in prison. Does anyone think Justin Trudeau's going to the penitentiary? Of course not. But problem number three, and this is the real problem, Mike. The point of the questioning this afternoon is really to just get that narrative down from the leadership under oath so you can check it against the documents that they've already called up. And the question they have, it's not a rhetorical question, is, was that the point of access? When you hear the Prime Minister, when he was a simple liberal backbencher, 
in one term, collected $277,000 in speaking fees from unidentified sponsors. Sometimes $20,000 a pop, Mike. That's real money. What was it that people were paying for? When you hear of the fees, spectacular fees and free trips to London and New York for his wife and his mom, what is it that those people with We Charity were paying for? Those are the questions. MPs have already ordered up the documents, and now they're going to do this exercise in truth-telling under oath. Okay, speaking to Tom Korski, managing editor, Blacklocks reporter in Ottawa, looking ahead to this afternoon's testimony by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the We Charity Affair. The, the questions you raise are important ones, and the Kielbergers yesterday went to pains to point out that when they asked Margaret Trudeau, the Prime Minister's mother, to come and appear and speak at these We Charity events, they were saying, well, we weren't bringing, in there, bringing her there to try and gain influence over the, over the Prime Minister by, by giving big money to his mom for speaking fees. They say, look, she's a mental health advocate. She is she has overcome a lot of tragedies in her life. She has very bravely spoken out about her own troubles with uh, depression and bipolar disorder. And I think a lot of people really admire her for that. The one of the questions, though, that was revealed yesterday was the timing of the payments. That it wasn't until after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau became Prime Minister that the money started to flow uh, to his mom and his family. What is the significance of that, in your opinion? Well, I, th- I think there's two points, and, and, it's, and it's very intriguing. One is, really, what are the Kielbergers saying? We're good people, and they're good people, and we didn't mean any harm. Uh, unfortunately, when you get a speeding ticket, the constable on patrol doesn't care if you're driving a Rolls Royce or, or the minivan that I bring to work. It doesn't matter, Mike. You know, those conflict laws, those anti-corruption laws, are not just there for the circumstance where, where the guy with the, you know, the, the, the tattoo of a snake on his face walks into an MP's office and throws $10,000 on the desk and says, I want this snowplow contract. It doesn't matter if you think you're the right kind of people and it's all about the kids. You can't do that. That's yeah. the only mechanism for defense. The taxpayers have. It's not just about rules for the bad people and exemptions for the right kind of people. You either have a rules-based function or you don't. If I told you, you know, Mike, I uh, got a $43.5 million grant from the leader after I paid his mom, his wife, and his brother, you would say, were you doing business in Zimbabwe? Where, where did that, where does that happen? Well, well, I think why, what th- happened. this is why I think Trudeau is squirming here. I think he's potentially on the wrong end of this thing and this uh, ethics investigation for sure. And this is going to be dramatic testimony coming up here this afternoon when uh, Trudeau faces questioning in front of this committee. Here's what we'll do right now, Tom. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk more with my guest, Tom Korski, Managing Editor, Blacklocks Reporter in Ottawa. What's that sound of orcas underwater? Listen to that. So cool. So cool. That's when researchers dive with orcas. That's that's the sound they hear all around them. They're talking to each other for sure, right? Let's check in with Josh McInnes now. He is an orca researcher at the University of Victoria. Josh, it's nice to have you back on. Thanks for doing this. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate the call. Hey, Josh, when you hear the whales making those sounds, which is so extraordinary underwater, they're communicating, right? They're talking to each other. Yeah, so a lot of these orcapods um, and groups have specific dialects and vocalizations that they use to communicate. Uh, remember that they live in an aquatic realm, which is often difficult to see with visual with their visual eyes, and being able to communicate through sound is a lot more a lot more proficient and easier to use, easier to do. Yeah, that's amazing when you hear that. And do they use that kind of sonar to to move around too? Yeah, so they use yeah. echolocation to yeah. uh, to actually find their way around, which is basically uh, speeded up vocalizations or, um, that are used to basically use like sonar to find their way at location used to find areas, animals, prey, that kind of thing. Um, residents and or killer whales in general use that kind of communication to find their way. Yeah, it's amazing. They're amazing animals. Of course, they're kind of iconic for our province and everyone loves them. And we always worry about their well-being, of course, especially for the, the southern resident pods that uh, are under under pressure. And for a guy like you, Josh, who's a, a guy from Vancouver Island, I know you grew up uh just loving these animals, and I know you're just living the dream here as as, a, as an orca researcher. So let's talk a little bit about some of the developments. Uh, there's been a lot of news here for the local orca population, including um, we got, what, two two uh, female whales pregnant in the southern residence? Is that correct? Yeah, so um, two of the females, J35, um, is part of J-Pod, which is one of the southern resident uh, groups or families, um, extended families. And there's another one called L72, which is part of L-Pod, which is another uh, pod that belongs to the southern resident. They both have been recently um, described as having cats based on some new technology. Yeah, that's really cool. And uh, that technology is, uh, can you describe it? It's using drone footage, right? They fly, fly a drone over the whales and take pictures of them? Yeah, so the, the drones um, can be flown, you know, safely above whales at around 30, 40 meters, and they can take very, very detailed photographs of the morphology and the body conditions of these whales. And basically, you can see them beneath the surface. You can follow them with the respiration rates that are coming up and down. You can actually see them a lot better than you can from the side of a boat. Um, and being able to see their body from that angle, actually, you can see there's, you know, contrusions or their bodies. Um, in good health, if they've you know been fasting or if they're not doing well, um, you can actually see all those details and with with a drone or a UAV. Yeah, that's a, that's amazing technology, and this is how you're able to discover that there's there's two uh, pregnant whales there, and that you mentioned J35, and people will remember that the heartbreaking images of that mother whale carrying her her dead calf for so many day so many days that just what of a story that went around the world 17 days carrying around her her dead baby whale which is just so sad it is heartbreaking and the whole world reacted to that story and j35 the mom there she's pregnant again right so that's the same whale she's pregnant again is that correct yeah, so she had her first calf in 2010, and then um, which was a male, and then she has she had a female in 2018, which is the calf that she carried around for 17 days yeah. um, that had been a, uh, that died. Um, now she supposedly has another calf, um, which is this is really exciting news um, for this female. Um, and the same with L72, which is she's not as well known, but she's not not less not as important as either. She's a, a female um, that can definitely help the population, and this is really what we want to see. Okay, how do you know she's pregnant again? Is it just from her body shape from the drone footage? Yeah, so the researchers at Southwest Fishery Science Center, um, and uh, there's also researchers at, at, with NOAA uh, that do chemical analysis through biopsies, can actually look at hormones um, in their blubber. They can actually, in their blood, uh, they can also get fecal samples, which can show hormones. Um, 
certain hormones like progesterone in that that actually spike when the, a female is pregnant. Um, and then also the drone footage um, helps solidify that by looking at the overall body condition if the animal's gained weight, if she's round in a certain area where you, you know, in the stomach area where you, or the, um, the underside where it looks like there'd be a bulge or there could be a calf. These all really solidify that, you know, they're pregnant. And um, yeah. this also helps us with knowing when there could be a possible, you know, animal that may have had, may have calves that, um, that we don't know about that may, you know, she may have a cat, but if they suddenly disappear and then she comes back and she's not pregnant anymore, we know that she had a stillborn or, you know, we can kind of follow the pregnancy rate of these animals more thoroughly now with this technology. Right. That's amazing. Speaking to Josh McInnes, he's an orca researcher at the University of Victoria and everyone will be hoping, of course, for a better outcome for J35, this, this mom here. Uh, who is pregnant again? Is is it possible to have uh, tell a due date? No, I. You know, it's getting more and more difficult to. You know, that's very difficult. I mean, the gestation rate for a killer whale is approximately seventeen to eighteen months, and wow. you know they could. You know, they there's no real sign they can have. They can breed any time of the year, um, and I mean it could be any time that she could have this calf. Um, uh, and that's that's really exciting news. But the southern residents now are spending less and less time in the Salish Sea or the waters that are around southern Vancouver Island and Washington, and that's a big concern. And um, that is something we're you know monitoring. That can it becomes more difficult because they're spending more time in outer coast waters off of Washington, California, and Oregon. Why are they doing that? Well, um, the big concern, there's only 72 whales left in the southern residence, um, and there's a bunch of different factors that could be involved. Uh, one, uh, the big one, uh, lack of salmon, their main food, uh, Chinook salmon, which is also endangered, um, is what they specialize in. Um, there's also the fact that there's um, in growing cases of you know toxicology with toxins in their body. Um, killer whales are at the top of the food chain, so they accumulate these toxins over time. Uh, boat traffic uh, could be another one uh, dealing with um, you know increased boat traffic, shipping lanes. Uh, you know these animals are very acoustic, which means they rely on sound. If there's a lot of boat noise, that could be a, a hindrance to them. Uh, there's multiple factors that likely are involved in why these orcas aren't spending as much time here, um, it's, and most likely that they're trying to find fish stocks that might be elsewhere, yeah. like off of the Columbia River, off Oregon, or off of California or Monterey. Right, that's very interesting. And of course, they're called the they're called the resident whales because they they tend to stay in that one area. Right? Is it unusual for them to be down in as far south as California like that? Well, you know, we we you know, the research initially um, in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Uh, you know, even though they spent a lot more time here in the summer months, where they follow the salmon into the inshore waters uh, as they start to congregate and head into the rivers, um, the killer whales spent a lot more time here. But we didn't. A lot of people didn't really know where they went in the winter time when the salmon decided to go back out to sea. Did they follow the salmon out there? So, I mean, it, with the sightings data too is lower back then, and now we've got more people on the water. They're they're you know collecting more sightings and data. For, for researchers and the fact that, you know, they may have made trips to California, you know, in the last 30 years or 40 years since research it really began on killer whales, they, they might have been more regular. Um, so we could be just discovering that, that, you know, they do go down there and um, or this could be a new trend. Okay, very interesting. Uh, overall, you mentioned that the southern residents, 72 whales, that number, right, how does that number compare historically? Like, what's the overall kind of health of this population right now? So the population is um, declining um, yeah. substantially uh, over the years. Um, the 90s was around 90, 93 animals. And then um, before that, you know, it was down to um, 
uh, the lowest I think was about around 60, 60 to 70 whales. And that was when the, the captivity industry was at its highest um, in the right. 1960s and 70s when a lot of substantial killer whales were taken from uh, the waters around the Pacific Northwest. Right. So overall, though, they're still still threatened, right? Or is there any is there any sign for hope that they're bou- bouncing back in any way, or are they pretty stable? How would you describe it? Well, I wouldn't say stable. I wouldn't yeah. say you know. There's, I mean, they're down. They're still, you know, the decline is has been steady over the last ten years, and um, you know, it's kind of bounced around a little bit with yeah. you know, number. They had a baby boom, and uh, you know, in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, where multiple calves were born. Uh, but we're just not seeing. You know, we're still needing the, the population to grow, and we're seeing animals that are you know still missing, like a the big male L forty one, who who is um, you know is. Um, mated with many of the females and produce offspring with them. Uh, there was, you know, he's now missing and bringing that population to 72. Oh. So there's still a lot of concern with these animals. And especially as a specialist animal to hunt salmon, um, yeah. these animals historically in, in nature don't do very well, especially if their food source okay, is not doing well. Very troubling for such a beloved group of animals, for sure. Just hoping for the best there. Speaking of Josh McInnes from the University of Victoria, he's an orca researcher. I know you also uh, you also research the um, transient whales, right? So this is a different population of whales uh, that show up in our waters, I guess, pretty frequently. Like I saw some reports of uh, some transient whales spotted right off the beach near Victoria. Uh, what's going on with those transient whales? Yeah, so transient killer whales are the whales I really, the, the species I, or the, the type of killer whale that I really focus on. And they're doing quite well. Um, their population has, re- has done uh, fairly well over the last uh, 50 to 100 years. They've, um, in the last 10 years, they've had over 100 cats um, wow. born. And that is, it's very substantial. Um, the population is now at around 350 for the coastal transients here. Um, some of the work we're doing in California with another um, population, a subpopulation of the transients. Um, is around 130, so they're doing quite well, and that is a, a real sign of their food source, which is their main prey, harbor seals. Um, are, we're also doing very well, and their population has increased substantially, so that's that logistic we're seeing between the two, um, and that's really exciting. And their yeah. occurrence in the inshore waters has increased. We're seeing more sightings of them than we did uh, you know, 10 years ago. Right. So the uh, the main difference or a key difference there against um, in these populations is their food source, as you mentioned. So the, the resident whales would focus on the Chinook salmon, which are endangered themselves. But these other transient whales would eat seals, as you mentioned. How come the um, how come the resident whales don't switch foods? Why don't they start eating seals? Well, that's a good question, um, especially with the two, you know, the two types for, uh, specializing in different prey. Um, yeah. It takes different types of skills and behaviors, um, and killer whales are very much a cultural species that have adapted behaviors based on generations of uh, no knowledge of those prey sources. And, you know, hunting a harbor seal uh, in comparison to hunting a Chinook salmon likely contributes to many different types of behaviors that are needed to be used on those prey. Um, so, for instance, residents live in these big family groups that individually spread out and eat Chinook salmon uh, by themselves. Uh, but transients uh, hunt a harbor seal that's quite intelligent, and they use they live in small groups and to use stealth to hunt these these animals to sneak up on their prey and yeah. often coordinate their hunting behavior. So it it likely takes you know to associate with a resident killer whale, a transient to associate with a resident killer whale, you're likely decreasing your you know your chances of getting prey with hunting right. partners that don't hunt similarly to you. So this has probably caused some social isolation over uh, generations. Josh, I find your work to be fascinating, and I always appreciate your time and coming on to talk to us about it. Thank you for coming on today.
Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You bet. Thank you. Same to you. That is Josh McKinnis. He is a University of Victoria Orca researcher. He grew up on Vancouver Island. He's loved these animals since he he was a kid, and he's now, now living his dream as an orca researcher. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.